Alexander in Louisville. Where tonight, the National Guard is moving in as outrage spills into the streets. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a train wreck. The battle of the boomers, the showman versus the Joe man. Get ready for democracy to crumble. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. Jamie, as our country continues to teeter on the precipice of collapse, tell me, how are things for you today? To quote a great Southern band, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. (laughs) I'm glad you're feeling fine, Jamie. Uh, I'm doing okay myself. Uh, Today, dear listeners, we aim to spend a good deal of time talking through the first presidential debate, uh, which occurred just a few days prior to the time of our recording. Uh, But first, in our opening segment, we want to touch base and run through some of the recent developments around the Breonna Taylor murder the results of the grand jury uh, that was convened in the case, uh, which were released uh, about a week ago. And we also want to discuss briefly the current occupant of the White House's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court of the United States. In our second segment, as just mentioned, we'll take up the first presidential debate between a fairly reasonable Joe Biden and the absolute monster that uh, is Donald J. Trump, um, which proved to be indeed, uh, in terms of the debate, an absolute dumpster fire. My soul hurts just at the mention of the whole thing. As always, uh, we will bless someone's heart between our first and second segments, and we'll close out our show with our regular front porch musings. Before we begin today, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, to please rank and subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. Uh, Doing so will help others to find our work, and we certainly appreciate that. And if you want to read more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all for being with us this week. Jamie, let's start today with a recap of what's been developing around the murder of Breonna Taylor, a young African-American woman from Louisville, Kentucky, who, of course, was in an apartment with her boyfriend when police officers executed a no-knock warrant, which led to Taylor's shooting and her death. Roughly a week ago from the time of our recording, the grand jury results were made public in which we learned that no officer was indicted for anything remotely related to Taylor's murder. Instead, a low-level charge about property damage and wanton endangerment were the only things coming out of the proceedings. Since that time, a grand juror has come forward and requested that the full details of the proceedings be released to the public because apparently the grand jury was never presented with homicide or any charge above the level of wanton endangerment in the case. So it was not an option for the grand jury at all. Keep in mind, the term wanton endangerment didn't refer to the danger the charged officer brought to Brianna but the danger brought to the White family who lived in an apartment adjacent to Brianna and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, when the officer fired bullets into their adjoining wall. That was the endangerment being discussed here. The Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron has since appealed for a delay in releasing the grand jury information, though on the day of our recording, a judge has weighed in and said the information must be released by Friday, October 2nd. 
Also, the judge has ordered the release of body cam footage from the police officers. I'm not aware if that's public yet, but that should be forthcoming and may be out by the time you're listening to this episode. Jamie, let's start with the disappointment and the anger that surely so many people feel about the proceedings with the grand jury and the fact that the AG didn't bring charges of homicide for their consideration. Uh, What do you make of that and how people must be feeling right now? Mark, as you know, I am, uh, I spent four years in Louisville in graduate school. And so I know a lot, a lot of pastors up in that area, many of whom you might consider activist pastors. Mm -hmm. And so I've been getting a lot of reports from the ground just at the general uh, anger and frustration and honestly fatigue coming from the Louisville community sort of writ large. Now, it is obviously affecting African-Americans disproportionately, but my understanding, and really from the images that we've seen on TV, is that the crowds are very much representing a a panoply of of races and genders. And it seems like this is a time when folks in Louisville, especially especially young folks, have, have found their voice. And I think that is, it's worth celebrating even at sort of the tragedy that it, that it has arisen from. My, my sense is, and then talking to folks again on the ground, there was no expectation at all that Daniel Cameron or the grand jury was going to try to bring forth any kind of uh, murder or homicide or uh, accidental death sort of charges against the officers. That didn't seem to be in the cards. And mm-hmm. really, after we learned that the grand jury were never even presented with that option, it really doesn't seem like it seems like the whole thing was a setup from the beginning, which I imagine only bothers those communities even even more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, there is also just this level of fatigue from, you know, the country in general, certainly African-Americans more so, but the country in general, just that we continue to go through these cycles of shootings and 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 non-charges or charges with very, very sort of slap on the wrist sort of charges – yeah, it's the, the level of frustration in the Louisville community was already pretty high from the past hundred days, and it's certainly gone nowhere but up since then. I know that uh, a great deal of my friends are very, very concerned, sort of, about moving forward in the community, and so it's a it is a troubling time there right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we have said many times as we've covered the events of the summer of 2020 uh, in light of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor's death and George Floyd's death and Daniel Prudes and others, we have talked about the fact that we don't envy the position of police officers very often and we don't uh, imagine that their job is easy. Um, and and we have always said that in a no nonsense, no excuses made, you know, for terrible things that have happened and for abuse of power and other things like that. Like we've said that often and have been careful to nuance that. And uh, at the same time, um, this has to feel uh, and I'm owning my whiteness here, so I'm sure it feels exponentially higher for many people of color and the black community in particular. But it feels like one more um, just knock at what already seems like a pretty flimsy um, retort that people often make of, you know, well, these are just a few bad apples, you know, when it comes to, you know, this type of police violence. And on one level, of course, that's true, or at least I 
that's my political leanings. I do think that's true on that. You know, we're not characterizing the thousands and thousands and thousands of police officers that exist in very different. I, I lived in the Delta for four years, as you know, and our police um, force and sheriff's department were almost entirely black, you know. And so to paint with a broad brush um, is uh, that's all not an, a good path to go down. However, when you watch, I think underneath of that assumption is that um, and I'm sure members of the black community are much more well aware of this than me, but what's underlying all of this is an assumption that the system will do the right thing even when a tragic um, or just violent uh, use of force is in play. And what we see here is that that is not always the case. And probably sadly, it's well too often not the case that um, it's not just that there's the presence of a few bad apples uh, but it's that even when there are bad apples, there are great links that are gone to that 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 blue wall to protect the bad apples. It's not a um, uh, a process. At least we don't see it playing out in Louisville, where there's um, it doesn't feel like there's real justice even on the table, uh, and that that makes all of the the nuance that one would want to give about a situation like policing in America broadly written. Um, it makes all of that just harder to take. And I just imagine that the frustration, again, as we've seen and we know, just mounts and grows and grows. And uh, no one no one is helped by this situation when justice just can't seem to enter the picture in, in, in many ways at all. And so that's just a, something I lament and, and feel that, that rage and anger about as well as so many people have felt. The, the system seems broken to me from the get-go in terms of the no-knock warrant. And we've talked about this on the show before, I know. But to me, it it is near crazy to think that you could kick in a door at 2 o'clock in the morning and and if the person had a gun, not expect to get shot at. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, and I'm not a gun guy. And it, it strikes me that that if it were me sleeping or whatever at 2 in the morning and somebody kicked in my door – that is a terrifying and b a fight or flight response, <laughs> and, and so it does not surprise me that that Breonna Taylor's boyfriend shot at the cops. Um, it, it honestly would surprise me if it didn't happen more often. Uh, so I, I, there's just something there's something that is incredibly broken about a system that asks that asks cops to go into situations where they're kicking in doors of of people who are accused of uh, heinous crimes and expecting them to stay safe all the time. I, for me, if I was a cop, I would be very concerned if I was asked to kick in the door of say a known drunk dealer who we imagined had a gun on the other side of the door. It just, it feels to me like it's asking both the police officers to put themselves out there in harm's way, but also it's asking somebody who, again, I, I don't really know the circumstances and I don't know that they have fully come out of what was going on at two o'clock in the morning at Brianna Taylor's house or apartment. But, uh, but for me, if somebody kicked my door in at two o'clock in the morning, I'd be terrified. And I don't know that if I had a gun, I wouldn't start shooting. So there's something that seems incredibly broken about the system to me that, and Kamala Harris has talked about this a little bit. The, just the, the practice of no knock warrants is a system that's destined to fail often 
and and we know that it does like statistically we know that it does mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. to me there is um there is a degree to which it's asking cops to to practice judgment that in the midst of being shot at may not even be possible and so i there's something that's just broken about the system for me and i don't know I don't know what exactly to do with that, but I know that I've come back to the idea of no-knock warrants again and again and again as I've thought through this uh, this situation. So that's just yeah, that's just a drop-in I wanted to make before we sort of move on to something else. Yeah, and I just I'm reflecting too, and I want to say this as quickly as I can. I, there's still this sense of like black blackness and black skin when it's associated with drugs that then like conjures images of very you know violent people very violent behavior right like those those that the symbolism there seems to get nestled together whereas i just have to believe that in many instances uh people who are dealing drugs to get by in their neighborhoods are not these um these stereotypes of these big like gangbanger type of of images that has been um you know, given to us uh, in culture and been perpetuated, whether through music or movies or, you know, just any type of pop culture or expression. So I I say all that to say, like, why the assumption, and I don't know all the details, but why the assumption that because a person has been accused of trafficking drugs, why we make the leap from there to the point that we assume that there's just this inherent built-in violence that we just have to counteract with a no-knock warrant. <laughs> that that's the only way that we can get to this person is by doing such a thing because otherwise it's going to be like Tony Montana, a blood, that kind of, I hope that makes sense what I'm trying to say, but I just, I think we also need to stop and question that logic and why, again, my point is that that the boyfriend and others like this wasn't a notorious crime ring in terms of violent murders and behavior throughout the city of Louisville. It was drug trafficking. And um, there's not a white kid at a university somewhere who hasn't, (laughs) there's a lot of white kids at universities somewhere who's picked up some marijuana from their weed dealer. Right. And like, and that's not, we don't think about having to like go in with no knock warrants to take down their low level (laughs) Uh, person and that's not, that's not an advocation for those things but like but, but you see what i mean like our our the ways that blackness gets symbolized in our culture it just lends itself all the more to assuming that because somebody has been charged with trafficking and drugs and that must mean they're this larger than life monstrous type of figure capable of doing all sorts of evil and therefore no knock warrant is the only thing that we think is appropriate for trying to get to this person and i think we we also have to check some of the symbolism there Oh, no, I think that's absolutely right. I come back again and again and again to the number of uh, non-African-American mass shooters who have been brought in yeah. without any without any shots fired at all. Yeah. And what makes that so much of a different situation than, than, than kicking a, a, what is a relatively low-level drug dealer's door in? Like, I just, I don't, those two things can't, comport with one another for me and so I'm, I'm left to come back to that again and again and again yeah jamie now i want to i want to give you the last word on this before we move over to uh, the supreme court nomination but let's um there's a lot of uh, a lot of things were being shared on social media in the wake of um the grand jury um decisions 
uh, which have, have since been overshadowed by all that's happened with RBG and with the um, the presidential debate a few days ago. But what was immediately being shared on social media, of course, were the the, the memes and the ideas about um, Breonna's Taylor was not her life was not valued in the same way that her neighbor's property was. And going back to the idea of the wanton endangerment and that this cop, what charge was, um, what indictment was handed down was for the damage that was done by virtue of the, the some of the, a, a bullet that struck, you know, an adjoining piece of property there in the apartment complex. And I just wanted to get your thoughts about the symbolism behind that and, and how that's been spoken of and um, what we're what we're to make of all of that, because I think it's a salient point that people are trying to oh, make. Oh, no, I think it is as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. So one of the things that that it took me about 30 seconds to get to when I heard that charge and sort of uh, began to understand, like I'm not a lawyer. And so I don't know that I knew all the sort of technicalities of it. But as I began to understand what was actually being charged, what struck me was if the officer had been a better shot and just put more bullets into Taylor, then he wouldn't have been charged with anything. I think that we ought to sit with that for a moment. I think the whole country should sit that with that for a moment, that, that we are more concerned, honestly, with the damage done to potentially done to other people's apartments than we are a, a flesh and blood person who was uh, who was doing nothing wrong at the time and ended up dead. Yeah. I, I think that the country really should sit with that for a while. Absolutely. Um Jamie, we are, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're trying to get a lot in today on our show. And as we've had um, no shortage of major events occurring recently, um, we're going to pivot here uh, just so we can get things in. Um, We want to go to uh, the Supreme Court nomination that President Trump has recently put forward of one Amy Coney Barrett, um, who is a so-called darling of religious conservatives. We're going to talk about that for a second. Barrett, of course, is being nominated exceedingly quickly in the wake of the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Barrett has served on the faculty of the law school at Notre Dame. She has been a member of the Federalist Society, a very conservative law group, um, and she has often been publicly critical of the Affordable Care Act and any type of government support of birth control and women's access to abortion. Jamie, let's start there with her professional history and the timing of her nomination to Ginsburg's former seat. Um, I know we talked about Ginsburg and her death and what was looming last week, uh, but could you bring all of this into focus uh, for us again on today's show? Yeah, absolutely. So so what strikes me as as salient in this this discussion is to focus on uh, Barrett as not just sort of a, a, a threat to you know, women's reproductive rights. I think that that's going to garner the most most headlines. But honestly, what was a much bigger story for me this week was the president of the United States speaking openly about hoping that the general election in November gets tossed to the Supreme Court. And so with, with the assumption that because he filled that seat in the manner, or he's trying to fill that seat in the manner in which he is, that she will join the other conservatives and necessarily... Uh, support whatever sort of argument he brings to challenge the results of the election should they go against him. Like to me, that is, that's such a huge point that in the midst of talking about the loss of uh, reproductive rights or the loss of healthcare, that that's likely to get overshadowed. And yet to me, that is maybe the biggest story to come out of this week is the president 
the president is notorious for saying the quiet part out loud. And so when he says, when he says that he is intentionally placing somebody on the courts as quickly as they can, so that they can be a deciding vote in whether he gets to be president again or not is insane to me. And I, I hope that it, it it rings insane for a lot of other people as well, because otherwise we've just devolved into utter chaos. And I don't know what to do at that point. Yeah. I, I think it's worth lifting up sort of her, uh, her lack of experience on, in the courts, I think that's probably important to, to say. Also, I mean, she is she was brought on to, to kill the Affordable Care Act. There is no doubt in my mind about that, and which will happen yeah. a few days after the election. Uh, so it, it's th- those pieces are important, too. But for me, the bigger piece is this uh, desire of the president to fill that seat as quickly as he can so that he could have a deciding vote in favor of his presidency over a Joe Biden presidency should it get kicked to the Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a few other points I want to tack on here that just um, are you know, blindingly frustrating to hear, uh, to think about. Um, first of all, it, this is not to jump ahead too far, but in the presidential debate that we'll talk about in our next segment, um, at one point, Trump was chastising Biden for leaving, for the Obama administration's um, leaving of so many judicial positions open uh, in terms of the court and uh, appointments. Now, that's laughable and ridiculous on its face because, as we all know, um, one Mitch McConnell and the Republican-led Senate refused to (laughs) give hearings, confirmation hearings, to so many of Obama's would-be appointments. And so, in the use of um, all the different machinations available to them to make sure that those seats uh, stayed open. So that's ridiculous, but that's par for the course with Trump. Now, mentioning McConnell takes me back to last week and just all of the the lambasting of McConnell that he very richly deserves for his hypocrisy in um, failing to bring Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland to the Senate for a confirmation hearing when that was, I think I was off last week by a month in our show where I I think I said maybe it was January of 2016, but it was February of 2016. So it's still a difference of some nine months compared to two. Um, I bring all that back up today, Jamie, because I just saw a video floating around yesterday um, of Amy Coney Barrett, who had given an interview. You may have seen this, I'm not sure. I've given an interview back around 2017 or 20, no, it must have been in 2016 during the time, um, who goes on the record with some news outlet and she's basically justifying Mitch McConnell's, the Mitch McConnell-led decision to not give a hearing to, uh, to Mary Garland because it's an election year and the voters should decide. She's parroting all the talking points of the Republican Party at that time. Um, and she also goes as far, Jamie, and this was also a talking point at the time. It's not just Barrett, but she repeated it. She says, you know, and this was to replace um, Antonin Scalia's position. And she said she just reminded listeners of how conservative Scalia was and how it would just not be a good thing in her language to replace such a conservative justice with such, uh, yeah, with with a democratically appointed or a Democrat appointed, i.e. liberal justice to the court. And that was even more reason why they should not uh, let Obama's appointment uh, have a confirmation hearing because 
that was going to replace basically a conservative with a liberal and what that would do to the balance of power on the Supreme Court. And she was saying this not to a partisan Republican group, but as if this was just commonly accepted good practice for the appointment of Supreme Court seats or positions. And so obviously the great big irony and hypocrisy here is that she is now herself landed in this position and she is a conservative who would replace a liberal and who would very much tip the balance of uh, the scales in the Supreme Court. Uh, that makes my, again, my brain hurt. And <laughs> here we are, uh, of course, uh, calling out hypocrisy for the Republican Party means absolutely nothing in today's climate. And so that's not going to change anything, but it should stand for the record that um, that this was not just a McConnell thing, but that uh, Barrett herself, well before she was nominated, has come out and has said all of the things that is now um, her nomination and the process that will ensue is flying directly in the face of. So do what we will with that. Um, Jamie, before we uh, leave uh, Barrett, there is a strong religious story circulating and emerging about her as well that we would do well to cover. And just to mention, um, our fellow uh, liberal religious colleagues have, have been captivated by her participation in a group known as the People of Praise which uh, is a Catholic charismatic renewal group that emerged in the 60s following Vatican II. Uh, and this particular group uh, emerged in the town of South Bend, Indiana, which is where, of course, the University of Notre Dame is located. Um, Jamie, what have, you, what have you noticed about uh, this group and how it's being talked about and how we might make sense of it as progressive people of faith? Well, you know, I think the... The top line is the the gendered roles in the community. I mean, I think that's where certainly lifting up and the the fact that at least at some point in their history, I don't I don't really know the timeline, but I know that at some point in their history, women were called handmaidens, and yes, I, I'm sure that Margaret Atwood appreciated that a lot, uh, right? So. Before her book came out, but I'm, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. But so, so, I, I, I'm torn about this. Like, it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, that Amy Coney Barrett is in one of these sort of communities. Like, I mean, she is a conservative Catholic, and there are extreme uh, sects within the Catholic Church in America. Right? Think about uh, the the Catholic League and and Bill Donahue. Uh, who was on TV all the time a few years ago, sort of being the conservative lightning rod of Catholicism. Uh, you know, so that, that part doesn't surprise me. I think it's fine for liberal religious folks to lift that up. I also think it doesn't make two licks of difference. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it's important to know this about her because I think it's going to help to predict sort of some of her decisions but at the end of the day, I don't know that it's worth spending a whole lot of ink on because, again, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever in her confirmation. Yeah, I agree. And I, I just it makes me think just in general about um, the, the need on the one hand to be careful about going after people's religious affiliations, because in a pluralist society, of course, people can practice religion in most any way that they choose to. In, in terms of what's legal and constitutional and they're, you know, not applying any kind of test, blah, 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 <laughs> about being fit for office. Now, what is worth parsing out, of course, is the ideal that a person's religious background, when they step into the role of a public 
office or serving in a public function that their religious ideals will not so supersede the um, the civic and uh, the civic foundations of the of our country and, and what have you that they that there would be some willingness or ability to uh, to remain as objective as possible um, when it comes to separating out the the bent and the aspiration of one's uh, of one's religious background and that of the duty that they are willing to serve on behalf of their nation. And of course, where all of that gets even more muddled is on the Christian right and with Christian nationalism, as it's on its on a, it's been rising for a long time. This is not new. Uh, and within that world, and this is what a lot of our colleagues are pointing out, is that there's this idea that the actual governing structures of our country should be Christianized and should be made to reflect uh, what's often a conservative religious Christian religious agenda in terms of morals and legal aspects of our society, et cetera. And so all of those things do do merit being uh, considered. And I'm, I'm sure that there will be some people in the confirmation process who will ask and interrogate her on those things. And I'm sure she'll say all the boilerplate things to reassure the Republican majority that, you know, <laughs> she'll say what she has to say and it'll, and it'll get through. And I'm also aware just on a more philosophical note that um, this ideal of objectivity is, is just not always there either and not always possible for human beings to actualize. And so we're all going to be informed and motivated in some sense by our philosoph our philosophical background and religious background and our, those moral traditions and that moral universe. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, it's still worth knowing what those things are and how that will affect and a, a public servant's role in how they see themselves in making decisions that affect people who also live in this country who are who do not share their particular religious background and that's that's a lot of nuance that needs to be held um, in that again i'm with you i don't think it's going to make any difference going forward but it's just important to name out loud in terms of our civic discourse and religious discourse to keep these nuances in front of us and also not being um ignorant to the long-term consequences that putting someone in a position who holds certain um, very uh, particular views could have when serving in this role. I think what often gets lost is the idea that, uh, you know, somebody who would challenge Barrett on her religious views are saying that she can't practice or, or she's wrong somehow for holding them. And that's not what I think most liberal folk are saying. What we are saying is that we're concerned about how those things will then influence the way we make decisions about the lives of other people again as i said a moment ago who don't share those same values and that's what has to be considered in this conversation jamie we're moving along now to our bless their hearts portion of the show in which we muster all of our southern passive aggressiveness and bless the heart of somebody who has recently appeared in a less than favorable light Jamie, whose heart are you blessing today and why? Mark, I'm going to throw a wrench in this a little bit and, and use the, the Southern colloquialism in its most positive form. Uh, yeah. On, a, on, on Tuesday night, uh, our house and most American households, of course, watched the debate and sort of watched in horror as we watched, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but... Uh, 
as we saw sort of what unfolded, I think the general mood of the nation was just utter shock and bewilderment and, like I said, horror. Uh, mm-hmm. But in my house, at least, I have to say that in while we were watching it, my eldest son had a running commentary going on during it. And A, it was <laughs> hysterical, but B, it was also insightful. And he he mm-hmm. was able to listen to both uh, both candidates with a, a, a critical ear and, and, and really uh, challenge more often the sitting president, but also Biden as well. Uh, and so it was, it gave me hope for, for the future that at least his generation is coming up with more sort of awareness of what's going on around them than say our generation would have you know, 20 years, 30 years ago at this point. Uh, so I, I want to say, uh, I, I want to bless his heart for giving me, for giving me hope during that time. Absolutely, bless his heart indeed. Um, I'm going in the other direction uh, and blessing the heart of one Tucker Carlson from the Fox News Channel. Um, Tucker Carlson was apparently he or his show was involved in a legal dispute recently. Um, about the impact of his words and his claims and the, the types of information that he was putting out there. No, I don't remember all the details of the case. But essentially, lawyers uh, on the side of <laughs> for Tucker Carlson basically came out and said, no, no, you cannot take him or the things he says on his show seriously because obviously they're not something to the effect that they're not true or they're obviously exaggerated and are meant for entertainment purposes and are not meant to be like actual real things corresponding to real things that are happening in the world. Um, and and the, the, I think they won the case for it as well. So at, on the one hand, they, they got out of the legal action being brought against them. And on the other hand, they had to just say what most uh, anybody who's, who doesn't watch Fox News would already know that these claims are often filled with a lot of, a lot of the, the stuff that's put out on the show is just awful, exaggerated, a lie, not true, et cetera, et cetera. And so that that was out there and existing in the world makes me happy. And on that note, Jamie, we'll wrap up this segment, blessing the hearts of both your eldest and uh, Tucker Carlson in our our different ways. Uh, Listeners, please remember that if you ever have suggestions for whose hearts we should bless, feel free to let us know on Facebook or Twitter. We're at PS Theologians on Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. Jamie, in our second segment today, let's do what we can uh, to move through the train wreck that was, and let me be very careful in how I say this, uh, Donald Trump's behavior on a debate stage last night. Uh, I say it thus because I want to be very clear that this was no apples to apples comparisons of two individuals behaving badly, which we can talk about. Uh, With that being said, the debate was filled with rancorous bullying behavior on the part of President Donald Trump. Chris Wallace, the Fox News host for the evening, had an exceedingly difficult time reigning in Trump, even chastising him on numerous occasions because of Trump's chaotic and bullying behavior. Jamie, there's so much to discuss here, and I want us to put a pin specifically in the white supremacist moments of the night, which is not something that we should have to say as Americans about presidential debates, but there were white supremacist moments of the night. Um, we'll circle back to those in a moment. So, but first, before we get into those things, I want to hear from you about your thoughts as you watch the debate in general, 
and how you've been processing it on a broader scale. So Tim Alberta, who's a reporter for uh, Politico, wrote an article about the debate. I want to say it was either the day after or two days after, in which he compared the Trump of 2016 to the Trump of 2020. And, and, And for all sort of his foibles, Alberta concluded that in 2016, even when he was acting sort of belligerent at times, he at least looked like he was having fun with it. Like it was like it was a, it was a light sort of belligerence. It was, uh, he, he seemed to be having a good time in the midst of the debate. And that in 2020, he just seemed like a tired, angry old man. Uh, and I, I think that's what I've come back to again and again, as I've sort of considered the debate now, two days past, it's just the degree to which in, in 2016, there was purpose to the way in which Trump was challenging Hillary Clinton and trying to throw her off her game. Now, how successful that was is probably debatable, but but it, he at least had purpose and thought and intentionality in what he was doing. There was a, I believe it was that same article talked about how this time around they had all sorts of plans for what Trump was to do, and there were a few that would have really put Biden on his heels. There were a couple of really good both one-liners, and he had the lady that he that had been in prison for a long time for, for selling drugs, who he had commuted her sentence. And yeah. he was arguing that she had been put in prison based on the, the parameters set by the 1994 crime bill that Joe Biden authored. And so he, he was going to point her out in the middle of the debate and demand that Biden apologize to her for all the time she'd spent in jail. And that would have been, I think, probably the moment of the night. And so as I think back to it, they really did go into to the debate with a solid plan, even though he was going to be a belligerent. But he just could not maintain sort of control of himself. And he just seemed more unhinged than anything else. And so that's that's sort of my initial thinking about the debate. And as I've thought about it over the last couple of days, that's really where I've ended up. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that example. Uh, I, I just think, um, I think broadly speaking, too, I was, I was, I was holding my breath on a number of issues that that came up that I thought uh, Biden was going to have a harder time dealing with if Trump pushed in certain directions, and those directions didn't always come, or or those push that that type of push didn't always come from Trump. Um, largely because of the belligerent behavior and just the erraticness of, of the things that Trump was talking about, or the way really that um, Trump would just go off the rails over just responses that Biden would give, not even directly to Trump, not at Trump's provocation, just in Biden's answering a question by the moderator. And then that would so get Trump going in, in all the directions that he went. Um, that it actually, there were many moments that gave Biden more coverage um, than maybe, the, I'm sure, than what uh, his coaches, Trump's coaches were ever hoping for. Um, obviously, I think, um, are, are, are there some hardcore committed Trump conservative folk out there who would not waver for any reason who are going to look at the debate as nothing but a success for Trump? Sure. Like that's obviously going to be the case. Um, Trump could do anything as he's claimed and they would still be his supporters. With that being said, um, I don't know data. I don't know statistics in terms of what's going to come out and what's going to happen in November. But 
Um, it, it just was obvious on its face, not only that Trump just behaved in such a way that was mean-spirited, bullying, chaotic, divisive, all the things that it usually is, but just in it, the, the limelight being there with 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 Biden standing next to him on stage, it just it it it, it put a a megaphone up to that and just made it look even more ridiculous. These televised debates have been going on for what 50, 60 years or more, and there's just a certain decorum. And I don't lift up decorum for its own sake, but just Trump overstepped those things so much um, that it stood out all the more. And I think to there there I don't have the right way to talk about this yet, but in 2016, Trump was a novelty act and for the viewer to tune in and to see, and he was not yet president. He did not yet have that mantle, of course. Um, I don't think Trump thought he could win when he was going through these debates in 2016. Certainly many liberals did not, and Democrats did not think Trump could win. Uh, probably a good number of Republican supporters did not think Trump could win it going into the debates in 2016. And so I agree that that, that gave itself a certain levity. Um, I, I use that word carefully there to the situation because it just it really it felt more like a reality TV show that we were tuning into and we were all sure we were holding our breath that that Trump wouldn't get elected but many people did not think that would actually happen anyway and so Trump could play the character that he was without the same sense of gravity that we all you know woke up with on the next day and realized was fully here fully present and the shock and the awe that came from that um, but to frame that differently to with these debates in this first one, because now, you know, Trump does come in and, and not that it's any secret that Trump is not presidential and doesn't carry himself in a certain way and is rude and is a bully and is a misogynist and is sexist and racist and all that stuff. That's not new, but this is yet one more um, kind of a unique situation. We don't have televised presidential debates, but, you know, three times every, every four years, and to see um, the way that he would just, all the ways that he behaved, I don't need to name them um, at this point, just uh, shocking, stunning, um, disturbing. Um, it's one thing to hear a soundbite of something Trump said at a press conference in, in response to a national event. It's another thing to see um, him behave in this particular way. I will also very quickly bring up the fact that there's something there is something qualitatively different about Trump behaving in this way towards Biden and the difference that it was in the way that he would behave, although it was not in the same degree toward Hillary Clinton. And I'm hitting on several things at once here that we don't have time to go into, maybe. But one, the gender differences, obviously, between Biden and, and Hillary and all of the disturbing things that we could talk about in the way that Trump relates to women. But also just the general um, climate of not liking or trusting the Clintons um, and Hillary in particular from much of middle America and right wing America that, um, you know, say what you will about Biden. I don't think Biden just inherently brings all of that same sense of uh, disgruntledness that people have had toward the Clintons for decades on the right. I'm not talking about on the left. Um, and so. There was almost this, uh, there was almost more of a sense of innocency. Not, I'm not saying Biden deserves that, and I'm certainly not saying Hillary deserved that either, because obviously she's been maligned and mistreated for many decades of her public career. Um, but that, I, I, I wonder, again, if that strikes a different chord. I know gender is an, an element of this too, which is not fair necessarily. 
Um, but to see Trump beat up so badly on Biden, um, I, I don't know how that's going to play with moderate in the middle, undecided. I don't know who in the world's undecided at this point, but I do know they exist. So I don't know how all that plays, but it's obviously the understatement of the day. Not a good look. <laughs> um, Jamie, let's let's jump into this other glaring aspect of it that I know we want to cover. Um, and that is the, the glaring red alarm um, that's been blaring about his performance in the debate. And that's Trump's uh, equivocation and call to arms of the white supremacist group, the Proud Boys. The equivocation, of course, comes from the fact that uh, Chris Wallace asked you know, Trump to denounce um, the violence of right-wing militias and white supremacist groups and to distance himself from them. Um, we haven't now we haven't discussed the Proud Boys on the show. They are exactly what you think they are. <laughs> they are a collective of uh, middle-aged white men primarily who have been successfully kicked off Facebook and Twitter for their their racist language and memes and such. And I mean, as you know, that takes a Herculean effort, especially to get kicked off Twitter. <laughs> so, so they are like I said, exactly who you think they are. Uh, and right. So what what it strikes me, we can sort of go into this a little bit more in depth, is that I have several conservative friends on Facebook and and many of them were saying that when Trump spoke that night and said, stand by and stand down or stand down and stand by uh, before going into talking about Antifa and, and the left, uh, they really they honestly believe that he misspoke and that. Uh, and that he was trying to denounce this group that he claims to have never heard of. I, I will say that that night, the Proud Boys, I don't know on what social media they are left on, but they're on something because they uh, they believed that that was a call to arms for them, that, that what he was saying was to stand by and that there were going to be further orders mm-hmm. coming as to how they were supposed to act, especially on November 3rd during the election. Uh, so, you know, Again, I have friends right. who, who, honest to goodness, think right. that Trump was misspeaking and that he is—he's uh, a good and decent fellow and doesn't have a racist bone in his body. And, and, and my response is, I don't really care if he's racist or not because the racists think he is racist, and that matters at least as much as whatever he actually thinks. That he has so played footsie with that yeah. community of folks and has so not wanted to alienate them and shave off, say. Two percent, three percent, four percent of his of, of his support. That he he ends up in moments like this, where even if he was misspeaking, it doesn't matter because the racists think he's a racist and with them, and and so it really doesn't matter at that point whether he is or not. Right now, and and I mean, just there's um, so much of his life story. Oh no, make no mistake. I think he's a racist. <laughs> <laughs> and I, know I don't have any that. qualms saying that, yeah. but, but I'm just saying that well, there are those who. Who do not believe that, and, and who for, who believe that he is a decent and honorable fellow. And my only point is that, that really doesn't matter because the racists honestly believe that he has their back. And there's no distinction to me at that point between whether you are a racist or just playing a racist on TV. Right, right. And he, and 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 I know you know this as well, but you can't misspeak this so many times. I mean, a lot of this conversation during the debate is when Wallace. Wallace was also asking, you know, Biden hard questions about Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter movement and these things. And then he turned equally to Trump and said, you know, will you denounce these groups? And 
it's interesting Trump's language when he when he was first being asked that. Of course, he was talking over Wallace while Wallace was trying to get the question out of his mouth. But Trump goes, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> like saying, yeah, affirming that he would denounce it and visits himself from them. And then Trump uttered a phrase which was the most telling of all, I think. It, Trump says, it's out, it may have slipped by a lot of people, but Trump said, yeah, 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 I'll say anything. <laughs> I'll say anything you want me to say. <laughs> he says that out loud. And I'm like, well, there you go. You know, like there's, there's always an equal sense to Trump of like, on the one hand, you are like a vile racist. Like that that's pretty clear. On the other hand, you seem to be this, this completely unprincipled, amoral person who's so narcissistic that you really will say or do anything if you think it makes you look and play a certain way in order for, you know, to make more money in terms of his private uh, business ventures or to keep him in this office. And so there is this sort of unmoored nature to Trump that came out very much in that moment of like, well, yeah, I'll say anything just to, to move this along or to, to get you off my back or whatever. And then he was almost, again, if he had just been able to shut his mouth, he could have said that and just say, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. That would have put like the the stamp you know, on the envelope to say, okay, well, there was a softball pitch. He denounced, you know, these, or he, he distanced himself from the groups. But then when he said, name one, maybe Trump kept asking why, this is for listeners who may have missed this. He keeps asking Wallace to name a group that he wants him to distance himself from. And it was Biden who says the the name Proud Boys out loud. And that's when Trump shakes his head and just says, you know, he, that's when he starts to equivocate. And he goes, I don't know, like, guys, you need to stand, stand down and stand by. And that's, of course, it's just so ridiculous. Um, but that that's what really took off at that point. Um, this needs to also be coupled, Jamie, with some things that happened toward the end of the debate in which Trump spouts off a long list of myths and lies about potential voter fraud or things that are already happening, which many of which had no bearing in reality whatsoever. Um, but he does bring up um, the basically he's accusing like that there are some liberal Democrat thugs who are hanging around um, voting booths, you know, to make sure that things go off well. And so there is no doubt in my mind that even though Trump probably had not connected the two things in his mind at the moment, but in terms of a group like the Proud Boys or others who are just, you know, standalone vigilante types like uh, the kid who went up to Kenosha Rittenhouse, um, that is a, a huge signal. Uh, and of course, the threat has is, is long been present from Trump that he is signaling to these people, if nothing else, and to go and to intimidate voters and to be present at voting booths, probably with their guns, you know, at whatever legal distance they have to stay away with or without guns doesn't matter. But these guys, these white guys love to, to strap up with some weapons and go out in public and walk around. And so I don't take for granted uh, any longer, especially in the, the climate of this type of conversation, that this also isn't uh, going to spill over in some way uh, to uh, election day and to who's present in the voting the voting precincts and in what ways they choose to show up and to be present. And that 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 along with many other things that Trump has said makes me scared for our democracy. Um, I do want to ask you because I think it's important. Um, I did have queued up a question for us to talk about what in what sense does it make to talk about a winner or a loser. 
Um, I, I personally want to shift from that for a moment because we're so far outside the bounds of what's a, a normal, regular debate. I don't think those terms have a lot of meaning anymore. Um, but let's talk about if you feel prepared uh, to Trump signals a lot of stuff again at the end of the debate, just about his reticence with accepting the election results, particularly and obviously if they come back not in his favor, but instead of Biden's. Um, what what were you feeling, Jamie, in the moment and what were you thinking about all of his threats and his refusal yet again in a public on a public stage to 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 guarantee that he would accept election results? I don't watch a lot of Trump press conferences because my blood pressure really isn't built for that. But that was, so that was the first time I sort of heard him offer this this sort of litany of various myths and conspiracy theories about mail-in voting and, and, and voting in person. And it was, so there was, there was, there was a degree of astonishment there for me that I wasn't fully prepared for. That being said, uh, his, his reticence to to say that he would accept the the results of the election ought to concern liberals, conservatives, Republicans. It ought to concern everybody because the hallmark of American democracy is the peaceful transfer of power, right? And and if what we get stuck with yep. is a guy who who loses on that night, but who pushes the the envelope so far that we end up talking about this for weeks and weeks after the fact. I, I just don't know what our nation is going to do at that point because you're right. There is going to be, I have no doubt accompanying violence that comes on November 3rd, but if the results are poor on the evening of November 3rd for Trump, and it seems fairly uh, clear that when all the votes are tallied, he is going to lose. I think there really could be a, a rising up of violence sort of writ large across the country. And I think that his, and I think it's largely fueled by his inability to say, absolutely. You know, Tuesday night, one way or another, I'm going to be speaking to Joe Biden and and we'll get this thing settled one way or another. Uh, his, his inability to say that, and while also talking about voter fraud and protecting the ballots and protecting the polling places, that ought to terrify everybody. Now it won't, but it should, because it really is, to me, the most direct threat to democracy that that the country has had, certainly in my lifetime, and I imagine in a lot of lifetimes. Um, the only time that I can think that is close is 1968, yeah. and even that was a fairly peaceful election day, as I recall. Uh, sorry, as I've read in history books, uh, <laughs> right? So, so there was there was a lot of energy around <laughs> sort of the conventions and. But by the time you got to election day, things were uh, much calmer in the nation, and of course, uh, there was no there was no mass violence that occurred at that point. So I, I, I am concerned, sort of, for November third, but also the time that follows November third, because again, I think if it seems apparent that he's going to lose, and I, I think I, I've told my wife this a number of times, I think you're going to go to bed Tuesday night knowing who won. That, that Tuesday night. I, I don't think it's going to be close at all. That being said, if it gets strung out for days or weeks or, God forbid, a month or two, like I, I just don't know what happens at that point. And that really ought to scare everybody, not just liberals, not just 
Democrats, but everybody. So that's th- that's what concerns me the most, having listened to him sort of yeah. offer this litany of, again, myths and conspiracy theories about what voting means. Absolutely, Jamie. I I could I could share for a long time on this show about um, how um, how much that has has shaken me to my core. Um, a, a lot of this language from Trump started to surface a few weeks ago um, with some articles that were coming out where he had been asked similar questions by the press corps, um, and he would very much equivocate um, and even just flat out say, like he did again during the debate, um, like. Essentially saying, no, he wouldn't. I mean, he didn't use the word no, but he essentially said, I'm assuming Trump, I'm paraphrasing here, but Trump basically is saying, I'm assuming that there's going to be so much fraud that I don't see how I could accept the results if they come back and the implication being if they come back and he's not the winner. I mean, that made me feel like I was living in a different country in places that I've read about where such things happen by fascist and dictatorial leaders. And I just, it, it shook me to hear those words spill over uh, from his lips. And I will take a moment and say this, and at the risk of sounding like a jerk, perhaps to some colleagues, after uh, after the night was over and a lot of our liberal progressive colleagues got on social media, the thing that most of them were talking about were the Trump's refusal to condemn the white supremacist groups. And I wanna say on the one hand, 100% absolutely that's the thing that should be condemned and talked about on social media hands down no doubt this this is a this is a both and situation that I'm about to bring up um, that should be that that is a thing that should be talked about I, I will say that I thought to myself well you know this this is a long litany of times that Trump has refused to distance himself from white supremacists so I didn't find myself too particularly shocked although it was shocking to hear it in the context of the presidential debate and what was more shocking, of course, was the stand down and stand by comment. That's that's of a different thing altogether. So I understand my colleagues who are pushing in that direction. Um, what I, it, I, just to be clear, because we haven't named it on the show, Trump, when he was running for office, was asked about David Duke and receiving David Duke's endorsement. And Duke, of course, was a, a famous leader in the Klan and all these things. And Trump was very hesitant to put any distance between himself and Duke. And then um, obviously, as Chris um, Wallace brought up, the occurrence around Charlottesville when Trump said there were very fine people on both sides, referring to uh, anti-Semitic, neo-Nazi, Aryan, you know, types. Um, so that was obviously disturbing. So for him to say it again, like that's not shocking. Like he said this, and we should double down and reaffirm the fact that we are against white supremacy, no doubt. And at the same time. The fact that one of the major, you know, the stories coming out from some of our colleagues is not that our our democratic structures are literally crumbling or are at risk and being overtly, explicitly threatened that they could come crumbling down within a matter of months. That equally deserves just as much <laughs> alarm and 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 bells and hand ringing right now because I, with you, if it's not, I, I hope it's clear. And that we know on Tuesday night, but if not, I do not know that we have the capacity nationally to deal with what's going to come in a way that doesn't lead to a lot of chaos and a lot of loss of life and other such things. I hope none of that happens. I don't know that institutionally even we're prepared to make sense of what of what to do, even in a situation like that. Um, I hope that we never get there. That's always my choice or my my hope. Uh, but it, we have a lot to wait and see. And I think that it's uh, important just in terms of civic consciousness that we know the, the, 
the threat that Trump brings on the racist and white supremacist front is very real. Um, and then I say, let's also keep beating the drums about the fascist behavior that he is indicating and showing. Um, he's showing us who he is all the time. Uh, my last statement will be in honor of Dr. Katie Cannon, who we have both worked with in the past. Dr. Cannon has a saying that when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Something to that effect, you know. So in this moment, uh, Trump continually shows us who he is and what he feels about our democratic institutions and norms and, and customs. And there is absolutely zero reason not to believe him and not to believe that he is um, not not primed and ready to do some things like we've never seen before uh, from a presidential leader in our countries. Jamie, it's now time for our front porch musings or a time when we share something that has touched our hearts or that we found interesting that may not be national headline news. And we do this as we close down our show. So Jamie, imagine that you finished watching the first presidential debate uh, you've somehow managed to glue your brain back together and you're at home on your porch and you're musing about the world. What are you musing about today? Well, Mark, I want to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about clergy during this time. As I said before we started recording, I'm finishing up having taken two weeks away from work. And it's really sort of the most extended break that I've had from pastoring in a really, really long time. And so I want to lift that up, because I know we have a lot of clergy who listen to us. I want to lift up just uh, self-care and Sabbath and and how important it is to have both of those in, in the life of, of your church and in your own personal life. Right? I can't tell you the number of articles that have come out in the last nine months that have said something along the lines of, your pastor is not doing okay. Your pastor is struggling right now. Your pastor is tired and frustrated and and feeling sad and dejected, and you need to check on them. Uh, and so I, I want to lift up just to my fellow sisters and brothers of the cloth, please, please, please do not uh, not take your allotted time away from work, even though during this time of pandemic, it is hard to do. It's hard to, to circle weeks in the calendar when you can step away, but it is essential to the health of your ministry and we on the show stand with you in whatever you choose to do. Absolutely. Thank you for that good word, Jamie. Um, I'm going to lift up today amusing about a new album that has been put out by the hip hop group Public Enemy uh, from the 80s, mostly, I suppose. Um, the band has gotten back together. Um, I was asking recently on Facebook about good protest music that was coming out um, contemporarily um, in light of, you know, the Trump administration and in terms of 2020 and all that's going on. And I was looking for some of those landmark, you know, albums or songs like we have had in the past by Kendrick Lamar during the, the height of the Black Lives Matter movement round one back in 2014, 2015. Uh, Neil Young, Green Day, Nina Simone, et cetera, Rage Against the Machine and um, it just so happened, I didn't know this was happening, but I looked up on iTunes the other night and Public Enemy has dropped this album and there is uh, song after song after song that is just great for such protest and rage music. If you like Public Enemy or if, you, if you're like me and don't know, didn't know a whole lot about their music, if you weren't around at that time, um, it's worth checking out if you like hip hop and if you're looking for a strong political message that addresses what's happening right now. Um, I highly recommend 
the album, there's some renditions of some old songs that are on there as well, at least one. Uh, so I, I looked it up. It's a very enjoyable album. It's good to hear Flavor Flav and Ice-T is making a cameo as well. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good, enjoyable listen uh, and one that rightly names our present realities for what they are and from their, their point of view. So lifting that up, great album. Go check it out. All right, good people. That's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, thank you for your time, Jamie. Mark, it's been a pleasure. And if you're listening along, thank you also for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Uh, please hit that subscribe button also wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking if you should so choose. Remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com. Friends, y'all take care. Jamie, you take care, and we'll be back with you next time.